Good afternoon. The Russian military has begun a brutal assault on the people of Ukraine. Without provocation, without justification, without necessity, this is a premeditated attack. Russian military vehicles, including tanks, entering Ukraine. The invasion, the attack that Russia promised would never happen, has now started. Countries being attacked in all directions. There are big explosions taking place. Yeah. People here are going to be waking up to a very different country than the one they went to sleep in. We are getting this non-stop reports of attacks and Russian strikes from all across the country. Well, it happened. On the 24th of February 2022, Russia finally did what it has been threatening to do for a long time now. Russia invaded Ukraine, pretty much unleashing hell in Europe and in the Western world. In three months' time, this war would cause a gas crisis, a food shortage, inflation, and unfortunately in some places, starvation. But why? What compelled a former KGB agent to invade his neighboring country? The West liked to play the card of a madman who for no rhyme or reason woke up one day and decided to risk it all and invade Ukraine. But how true is that statement? Was it an unprovoked Putin? Or was it perhaps something that Biden said 25 years ago? When talking about the eastern expansion of NATO, he remarked, if there was ever anything that's going to tip the balance where to be tipped, in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction in Russia, it would be that. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like that's a heavy statement coming from Biden. What does it all mean? And is there a through line between what he said back when and what's happening today in Ukraine? And on tonight's episode, we'll be covering post-Soviet Russia, post-Soviet Ukraine, Bill Clinton, drunk presidents, corruption, oligarchs, capitalism, former KGB agents, neo-Nazis, revolutions, all in an effort to answer the question, who is to blame for the innocent lives lost in Ukraine and Russia? And what will be the impact of this war? in the future. So welcome everyone to a conversation before the world ends. I'm your host, uh, Kareem. And I'm Eamon. And uh, welcome to tonight's episode. So, Aim, quick question. You've clearly been watching the news lately, and I'm pretty sure you're aware of the whole Ukraine-Russia thing. Yeah, of course, yeah. So, how would you, how do you wrap your hand around it? What do you think of it so far? Well, it's obvious that uh, Ukraine is just a strategic location for Russia. And because of its economic and location, strategic location, they've decided to slowly take over it by using pre-Soviet notions of excuse uh, to take over and NATO as another excuse to take over. That's just like in a nutshell what I've read about it is that there's a lot of economic gains from taking over a place like Ukraine. But NATO and some fictionary pre-Soviet stuff has caused Putin to justify that attack 
so far. Did your research clearly on this? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you have to. Yeah. Do you think this was an unavoidable uh, war, or do you think it was? I think he would have found an excuse either way. To be to be frank, uh, I don't think. I think it was inevitable. I think it was always in the back of their mind, just like how Hitler, in the back of his mind, had some places he wanted to take over when the Nazis did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm a hundred percent sure that, and the European nations and NATO kind of like let it go, let it slide, like appeasement almost of modern day appeasement. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So the reason why I decided to do today's topic because um, I found an article from Putin that he wrote last year about um, the history of Ukraine and uh, its lack of national identity. All right. And it kind of got me into a rabbit hole. So I want to focus on post-Soviet Russia, and I want to focus on uh, how since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there has been events that have pretty much um, led to this war. Cool, cool. So if you don't mind, if I could take you to a journey. Let's hear it. Okay. So our story goes back to... 1990s during the fall of the soviet union so the soviet union in the early 90s was a pretty much a research rich nation and there was a lot of problems that had internally and it was beginning to crumble and just like hulk hogan hitting that leg drop on nikolai volkov pretty much the end was in sight and america was well aware of this that so much so in the white house george bush the senior not the not our favorite president and his secretary of defense dick cheney who we would know in a decade's time and his secretary of state and tennis partner james barker and they started debating either to go for the pin and to to accelerate the collapse of the soviet union or to keep the soviet union in one piece now i have a question for you why would the americans keep their enemies in one piece i mean more focused attention perhaps no one word nukes you see the soviet union had 35,000 nuclear weapons wow okay and they were all spread across the states with Ukraine having a bulk of them. The way the, the United States saw it, that should it dissolve all these countries and make them all independent states, that means there's going to be more countries with nuclear weapons. Makes sense. And yeah. on the whim, one of them would have a trigger-happy tyrant that could be a big disaster. For sure, yeah. Makes perfect sense. So, so they tried to, tried to broker something, but alas, on December of 1991, Mr. Gorbachev resigned, dissolving the Soviet Union, and he would go on to star in a Pizza Hut commercial. Oh, wow. <laughs> America had won the Cold War. One, two, three. It was over. And of course, as any W, the winners are left with the following questions. How do I create a situation where I don't have to main event against this nation again? And B, how do I plunder this resource-rich nation? Sorry, I mean, how do I democratize this resource-rich nation? Now, this is where we get introduced to one of our favorite characters in this episode, Boris Yeltsin. Now, Boris was first elected as the head of the Russian SFSR which is the Russian state during the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. He was elected during its last formal years. And despite our favorite Pizza Hut actor trying his best not to get him elected, Yeltsin had won. Of course. So when the, when the USSR dissolved, he was left as the president of the Russian state, which was a great parting gift for the Russians, as you'll see. Now, let's go back to the United States, because the United States is really invested in this situation, as one should be. So like anything that happens in capitalism, you have to ask the question, who do I buy out to make me money? In 1996, the White House and Bill Clinton did just that, mounting a massive campaign to secure that our favorite drinking buddy was elected for his second term as Russian president. Bill Clinton would go so far to say to his deputy secretary of state, Mr. Tobolt, I want this guy to win so bad. And with the sweat falling down his brow, Clinton said, I want him to win so bad that it hurts. Because you see, Bill Clinton really loved Boris Yeltsin. Not, Not as a political 
body but on a personal level as well he thought that boris would be the best hope for to embrace democracy and capitalism and also there was this little caveat that boris pretty much acquiesced to every single nato expansion eastward since the collapse of the soviet union the yes man the yes man so of course the question now becomes how much did clinton invest in our little friend's election campaign want to take a guess oh man billions i don't know how much would it be 2.5 billion dollars on his election alone wow Because the world's built on ironies, later on Hillary Clinton would come around and say that the Russians screwed her out of her election. What was Boris Yeltsin doing up until 1996, before his second term election started? Around the time Rage Against the Machine released their second album, Evil Empire, Boris Yeltsin was the most despised figure in Russia, for a couple of reasons. So by the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, 77% of the country had actually voted to keep the USSR together. Wow. Yeah. It was not as unpopular as he thought. But Boris and two other men, the president of Bulgaria and the president of the Ukrainian states, pretty much got drunk and had signed a death warrant dissolving the Soviet Union. And waking up with the biggest hangover, the Soviet Union was no more. So what's next? Well, like that creep that's waiting for any breakup, capitalism slipped into the DMs and it had to get busy. Russian assets were valued at trillions of dollars and those were being sold off to private companies in a sort of a shock therapy to electrocute the Soviet system into a new, more new liberal capitalist system. So of course, with American advisors on hand and the IMF advocating, in December of 1991, Yeltsin had lifted price controls. Hyperinflation had reached the levels of 2,000 times what it was in 1990. Just to make it more capitalist. So pretty much a chocolate bar that would cost you a dollar was being sold for $2,000. Wow. That's, That's how crazy. it was. Yeah. State-controlled industries such as manufacturing plants, oil refineries, mines, media outlets, biscuit factories were being sold to private enterprises. It was unprecedented then, even until now. And this has been done in two waves. So the first wave of Russian privatization was done in 1992, which kind of had a veneer of being fair. I mean, Russia sold about 148 million privatization checks which it gave out to its citizens so that means each one would have a check to be able to bid in like the world's greatest garage sale on um, enterprises so everyone would have a stake in it now keep in mind this is 1992 so there was already inflation happening in Russia and GDP was falling we're talking oil companies agriculture railway transportations was all open for the public to be able to invest in. You know, so like to quote Megadeth, so far so good, so what, right? Yeah. Well, Russia's first class of oligarchs, the OGs if you will, scoured the nation with a map and a compass, pretty much looking for anyone who's willing to sell those privatization checks. And because Russia was pretty much in a state where it could not feed itself, the Russians, they were willing to give them the privatization checks for scraps. And these oligarchs are the ones who got wealthy during the black market in the 80s and when the Soviet Union lacks its laws on privatized private inter- entrepreneurship they were the ones who capitalized on it no pun intended including former Soviet government members now keep in mind that like we said those rags to riches hustlers and former government insiders brought people brought these companies that were pretty much undervalued because the main goal was to privatize as fast as you can now by 1992 to 1994 so this is a gap of pretty much two years now if you want to keep this in mind this is between two spider-man movies um 15,000 state-run enterprises were private in span of two years which means that by 1994 70% of russian economy had been privatized in t- in pretty much four years time 70% of the whole economy was privatized and of course during that time the, the russian government which was still democratic mind you began to see that this is a problem that we were privatizing so fast so they intervened and they tried to slow down the privatization process 
And during around this time, Yeltsin tried to resort to a much shadier form, shadier form of privatization. In 1995, which is fun fact, that was the time when the United States stopped funding of the NSF net, which means pretty much the internet became a privatized system. So what's the NNS? What's that called again? NSF? NSF net. That was a Russian internet? No, no. I'm just saying during that time when the United States privatized this internet, Russia moved in to privatize the second form of companies. Okay. Um. So, so the, wait, wait. The internet wasn't privatized in the 90s? No, no. The internet was a government product. Oh, interesting. I didn't that, know that. That's why when they tell you like these tech billionaires that always, um, oh, it's innovations, innovations, innovations on the backbones of government funded projects, bro. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so the internet was pretty much public for the most of its existence until 95, where it became a privatized entity. I wonder what now, what's next, yeah. Yeah, so in 1995, what was our favorite Cheers character doing? Well, Boris was on his way to become the most despised person in Russia, right? So like we said, hyperinflation was rampant, Law and Order was pretty much shit, and not the TV show. The Russian mafia was on the rise, and execution-style killings were pretty much happening in the streets. Yeltsin was fumbling around and pretty much having problems standing straight because of his drinking problem. His approval rate tumbled faster than he did every night and fell into the single digits. And pretty much he faced a specter of a popular communism front eyeing the 1996 elections, a fever of communism to come back in 1996. Let's get back to it. So with privatization stalling and the government desperate for money, Russia was about to slide back into communism. Yeltsin pretty much turned to a scheme. It's called Loan for Shares. And and besides sounding like the worst TikTok marketing scheme, Hmm. it's pretty much worked like this. The richest oligarchs loaned out the government money billions of dollars in exchange of four shares in Russia's MPP companies, which is the oil, the steel companies, you know what I mean? The backbone of the industry. And the idea was that the government would later default on paying back these uh, loans. So when the government defaults, what happens? The oligarchs get their hand on these, what should be public industries, put to them. Exactly. They get the keys to the company. Mm-hmm. And in exchange, the government would pretty much keep the money because it would default on it and it would be able to pay its bills privatization would, be keep, would keep moving forward and most importantly the oligarchs would do everything in their power to ensure that Yeltsin was going to get re-elected through this measure so they pretty much guaranteed that hey I'm giving you these companies guarantee my campaign interesting so between November and December of 95 12 of Russia's most profitable industrial imp- enterprises were auctioned off to oligarchs we're talking about mining companies steel companies shipping companies and five oil companies this whole, the whole shit was a sham, to be honest. Like, Boris pretty much gathered his friends from the United States and Russia and predetermined who was going to get what for how much the price. Wow, it's like, uh, let's take advantage of the Russian resources and I'll give it out to people who I like. Exactly. And, for example, who is one of the most famous Russian oligarch that comes straight to your head right now? Uh, Abrahamovich, of course. Abrahamovich. Okay. He got, lo- he got a stake in the oil company, Sibnev. For $200 million. Putin would buy it back from him in 2009 for $11.9 billion. That's how undervalued the company was. Anyways, Yeltsin did this. New Year fireworks go off. And now we're in 1996. So having presided over a catastrophic privatization of Russian economy, a GDP decline of 50%, hyperinflation, corruption, violent crimes, collapse of medical service, food and fuel shortages, pay, uh, wages weren't being paid, I mean, fuck pensions, and life expectancy dropped by 10 years. All, on top of all this, Russia had an unpopular war in Chechnya that they were pretty much bombing Chechen to oblivion. Mm-hmm. But of course, the Russian government, or the Russian parliament to be exact, did not take this lying down. 
By late 1993, the democratically elected government realized the massive fuck-up that Boris was and the humanitarian catastrophe left in his drunken wake. Pretty much provoked a massive opposition causing um, Boris to uh, resort to dictatorial means by dissolving the parliament. Now, yeah, we're jumping around in... I know I'm jumping around in errors, but just to sort to show you the picture. It, consider a Tarantino movie or Morbius. All right, okay. Sorry, I'm just asking, yeah. Yeah, so the time lapse, so we could be with you with the time lapse. Okay, yeah. so we're gonna go back. Okay, so let's go back to this. So let, let's go back to 1993 for mm-hmm. a moment. So during the first wave of privatization, you remember how I said the government was pretty much trying to re- roll back on the privatization? Yeah, fight it back. Yeah. Yeah. So of course they didn't just like stay quiet about it. There's a reason why he continued doing it for another three years. There was a massive opposition and and so much so they wanted to impeach Boris in 93. But um, through dictatorial means, he tried to dissolve the government or the parliament. In a, in a stance of defiance, the parliament barricaded themselves in their building and demanded that Boris leaves the presidential office to get back to a sense of normal norm, normalcy. It's such a delicate situation, you know, and a delicate situation requires a delicate and subtle solution, right? Like a government barricading itself in parliament, what would you do? You know, you have to deal with this like walking on eggshells. Yeah, exactly. Russia so Boris, with the subtlety of a wrecking ball, sent out a tank Boris and Nelson pretty much shot the at the parliament, House, killing 2,000 people. Yeah, and Bill, I did not have sexual relations with her. Clinton called Yeltsin up and congratulated him on his superb handling of the crisis. That's Bill Clinton for you. This is the same Bill Clinton who in 1996 lobbied the IMF to provide Russia with a small sum of $10 billion as a loan so Boris could woo his voters by guaranteeing that he would get money from the IMF to fix the economy. This was another point of the campaign strategy. He would go so far to say like every time he would visit a given city, he would tap on his pockets and say, my pockets are full. <laughs> like, wow. America also sent operatives to work on his re-election bid. And, at, and on top of that, he had the support of the oligarchs who pretty much were controlling the media by then. There was no way he was about to lose this election. And pretty much the only thing that would stop him from losing was him stumbling on a bus after leaving a bar, <laughs> which he pretty much did. And he had won the election in 1996. So much so that Michael Meadowcroft, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, which is a, like a kind of an outside election supervisor, would later claim that there was widespread voter fraud and that he was pretty much pressured not to address this. And it was stuff like he said, like, for example, in Chechnya, there was 500,000 adults eligible to vote. Okay, half a million people eligible to vote in Chechnya. One million people had voted and 70% had voted for him. That's the election fraud that was happening. Yeah. <laughs> and forget the fact that he was, and that 70% voted for him in a place that he was bombing out of existence. You know? Wow, yeah. So what happened after 1996? 19- the ultimate pup- puppet president. Yeah, so what happened after 1996? Well, Russia was pretty much poverty-stricken, a wasteland ruled by mafia, billi- and billionaires and gangsters all alike. Boris was pretty much getting more unhealthy, his drinking habit way out of control. And this brings us to the tail end of the 90s. Someone new was beginning to show up in the scene. And to give him a backstory, we're going to have to go back a bit to 1989. And we're going to have to go back to East Germany, where a KGB agent was pretty much outposted in East Germany during the fall of the Soviet Union. Okay, and he was pretty much out of work. So this former KGB agent goes to Moscow. Sorry, goes to St. Petersburg, where he hangs. He meets up with his former professor, Antonali Sobchak. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. A former professor who became mayor of St. Petersburg. And this foot soldier, whose name goes by Vladimir Putin, distinguished himself through his unwavering loyalty to his 
professor. Even even when the dude was voted out of office and was facing alleged cor- corruption uh, scandals, Putin proceeded uh, by protecting him and giving him a safe passage to France to avoid prosecution. This impressed Yeltsin's Alexei Kordon so much that he tried to hook up Putin with his with Yeltsin. Pretty much, Putin showed the devotion to Yeltsin that he showed his former mentor. And that when, so much that when Yeltsin was being investigated for corruption, which is not surprising, but of by course, nine, yeah. And with 1999, the evidence was being mounted against him. A sex tape of the prosecutor showed up of him having threesome and none of the women there were the misses. And pretty much Putin came out and said that that, that tape existed. Wow. So through this, these displays of loyalty, Putin climbed the crooked ladder of power in Russia and became the prime minister in August of 1999. And pretty much acting as president when Yeltsin resigned in December of 1999, officially taking the post on March 2000. And now Putin, who was still a corrupt murderous gangster like Yeltsin, but he was doing things different. He went after the oligarchs and he pretty much came up with a slogan for his 2000 campaign. For Russians, a strong state is not an anomaly to fight against. And that uh, the people were into him and everyone loved him. And I mean, like there were pop songs about women wanting to date Putin. He did have a charm as well. I think so, yeah. He had like that badass... I remember Putin vaguely from the 2000s, but... I don't remember if he had charisma, but like I do remember no, him. He still does. Like there's still that, uh, you know, he takes care of himself. <laughs> like I see that. He has, he has to sell himself as a strong man, right? Yeah. Now, Putin didn't want to go back to Stalinism by any stretch of the imagination, nor did he want to go back to a communist regime. And he was willing to play ball with the oligarch if they gave in to his demands, you know? Mm-hmm. And he did bring back Russia to a sense of normalcy in the first few years. And he had good relationships with Europe, good friends with Bush and but under the surface, Putin had pretty much clamped down on independent media, continued to watch over a brutal war in Chechnya. He placed his officials in places of government and his old buddies, he placed them in places of power. Despite all this, his approvals was up. Everything was stabilizing. The economy was actually improving. So this brings us to Putin's ambitions. Where do you go from there? Where does Russia go from there? Well, in the mind of its leader, the answer could be one thing. Nostalgia. Of course. And now we're not talking about like nostalgia of grunge or nostalgia of synth. We're going way back. We're going to go to the tail end of World War II during the Soviet Union. And when Hitler was pretty much spilling his brains out, the Soviet Union had emerged as a superpower. And so did the US of A. And it was during that time that a young Putin was born. And in a world that pretty much not only was Russia just a great power that dominated its neighbor, Russia was a superpower that dominated its neighbors. That was the world that Putin was born in. And Putin also lived through that if there was any rumblings on the country's doorsteps, it challenged that power. Mm -hmm. In November 2003, the Rose Revolution broke out in Georgia. Pretty much, um, Georgia, a revolution broke out. Mm -hmm. And it was under two pretenses, or two two ideologies behind it. First, it was the country wanted to pretty much go on a Western course. Two, at that time, NATO was pretty much having a second post-Cold War uh, expansion. Mm-hmm. This did not sit well with Putin because so far the countries that were added into NATO since were Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Bulgaria, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia. And that kind of pretty much made Putin antsy. Once upon a time, there was a safety mm. buffer zone between the East and the West. With the West being controlled by NATO and the East being controlled by the Warsaw Pact. And pretty much they kind of had like a stalemate where no one would aggress on the other because there was like this mutual assured destruction kind of thing. Yeah. And when the Soviet Union collapsed and every country got its independence and Germany officially joined NATO, people thought that that's it. There's no more NATO expansion needed. Yeah, I mean, Soviet Union's done. 
Yeah, and a lot of Westerners or a lot of American officials also try to um, either end NATO or to limit NATO's control. They thought it was pretty much pointless. Yeah, yeah Soviet but, Union is done. Cold War is over. Yeah, but nope. Despite that, um, NATO pretty much pulled in America and pretty much started bombing Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen in the late in the 90s and earlier years. And Putin was watching all this on the sideline and realizing realizing that shit, these guys pretty much are gonna put bombs 400 kilometers from my capital. And he did what you think you should do at that time. You're saying NATO isn't isn't giving in. I need to. He tried to join NATO, and NATO rejected him. So he tried to hook up with his friend, the EU. They rejected him as well. Hmm. And on the other side of things, the Russians despised NATO. By the way, the Russian citizens despised NATO so much so that every time NATO bombed the hospital or a school, Putin's ratings went up. Wow. Yeah. Even despite the fact that by then he was pretty much rigging elections, murdering journalists, poisoning former intelligence agents, pretty much becoming the tyrant that we know today, his approval rating was still going up. For some reason now you see it's becoming clear that the russians hated the united states so much that it just played into his hand yeah. exactly and it's the idea of this american exceptionalism that it could throw its power like some kind of manifest destiny and it has no one to stop or like no one has the right to call them out on it they work above the law you know yeah Uh, Judge Dredd, if you will. And this kind of brings us to George W. Bush and his last year of presidency. Now, Bush is going to be a whole different topic because I think he's impacted the world in a whole different way since he was the president that resided over 9-11, the war in Iraq. But yeah, so Bush, he wanted uh, pretty much a map, uh, a membership action plan for uh, Ukraine and Georgia to... Such an organized guy. Yeah, so he wanted an organ- a membership action plan for these countries to join NATO. When I first read it, I, re- I read that he wanted yeah. a map for Georgia and Ukraine. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, like at first I was, I was actually... He didn't know where they were, yeah. Which at first I actually wasn't, su- like, I wasn't surprised when they said that. I'm like, okay, fine. I could totally see him yeah. not know where Ukraine you is. forget how much of a joke he was. And he pretty much was going to announce their um, membership in, 2000, in the 2008 NATO summit. Now, Mr. Burns was opposed to the idea. And he told Condoleezza Rice in a classified message that the Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elites. Not just Putin and his people but also to the liberal critic it's and gonna make him gain more popularity because yeah. they'll feel under attack and he's like and I have yet to find anyone who views that Ukraine joining NATO is anything but a direct challenge to Russia mm-hmm. France and Germany and Bucharest also opposed the map for Georgia and Ukraine and the compromise was messy man like NATO's leaders declaration said that Ukraine and Georgia will pretty much become members of NATO so you're giving them hope that they will but they kind of stopped short of endorsing any action plan that would make such membership possible Ukraine and Georgia were left in with empty promises and they were consigned to drift indefinitely in this like strategic no man land between Russia and the United States so he had them sign up to NATO just for flexing power he exactly flex. like it's not even like flex it's like you're giving a temporary membership And you're like, yeah, yeah, we'll get you a membership later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Russia pretty much was just getting angered and pissed at this, at this like idea of a NATO expansion. It was a very uh, symbolic addition, but they didn't give them any kind of power or strategy. No, it was just something to, yeah, it's pretty much just like, hey, look, Russia, look, we could if we want to. They were to. trophy, trophy members. Exactly. And three months later, three months later, Putin would send in troops into the borders of Georgia. And a five-day war would erupt. I remember that, yeah. So Russia would call this peace enforcement. Pretty much he would kind of use it again when he's invading, when he invades Ukraine, which is pretty much Russia's way of saying liberation. When America says that they're attacking a country, it's for liberation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this very loose term that has no meaning anymore. It's just a way to justify your attack. Yeah, yeah. And two things were achieved pretty much. 
So Georgia's NATO membership was neutralized at that point, and Moscow pretty much recognized the independence of two states in, south, in southern Georgia and pretty much integrated into Russia. So that leaves us with one more country. Ukraine. Ukraine. Now, Putin is pretty much obsessed with the glory and might of Russia. Like, he was obsessed with Tsarist Russia, he was obsessed with the Soviet Union, so much so that when he, in the 2005 uh, State of the Union, ad- uh, State of the Union, State of the Nation address, shows you how Westernized I got, yeah. <laughs> State of the Nation address, he said, the first and foremost, it is worth to acknowledge that the demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And as for Russian people, it became a genuine tragedy. Tens of millions of our fellow citizens and countrymen found themselves beyond the fringes of Russian territory. He said this in 2005. That the Soviet Union's collapse was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Wow. Yeah. Putin also believed that Ukraine is inherently a part of Russia and that there's no difference between the two. Like, they are interlinked, but... Interlinked. <laughs> interlinked. But to think that um, Ukraine belongs to Russia... When the opposite is kind of true that Russia was born out of Ukraine, out of Kiev, since Kiev is an older city than Moscow. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's kind of him to rewriting it yeah. pretty much, yeah. So he believed that Ukraine was inherently part of Russia and that there's no difference between the two people in a historical cultural sense. And they both share the same national identity. Okay. And ethnic Russians make up 20% of the whole population of Ukraine. And pretty much, in, see, in the 2000s, he used to say this shit, but he said it in a more positive term into like, that's why we're, we're economic partners, we're strategic, yeah, yeah. we're like candid. America. Of course, the more Ukraine decided to go more Western, the more that kind the of became changed. of a father looking up for the son that's about the prodigal son, you know? It's like, I'm doing this for you. You guys, uh, I've tried being nice. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm disciplining you for your, for your own benefit, you know? Mm-hmm. Ukraine and most of, most of Eastern Europe pretty much found themselves in the same shithole that Russia was in in the 90s, you know? Oligarchs were in control, neoliberal capitalism was running amok, and everyone was listening to electronic music. Hmm. <laughs> Ukraine was pretty much left fucked. You know, in 91, Ukraine was considered one of the poorest Soviet republics, uh, cooping in about $1,300 per capita. Uh, now, traditionally, Ukraine, before the Soviet Union, was considered the breadbasket of Russia, where it was pretty much an ag- agricultural hub for the Russian yeah, Empire. Because the location is quite uh, nutritious, yeah and, yeah. and it's famous for its grain and corn and, and pretty much wheat, I think. During the Soviet Union, it pretty much got more industrialized and it became the Soviet Union's most industrialized area. And the country pretty much was left to start from scratch because everything was controlled from Moscow. Yeah. The country did not have any consumer goods. It was just manufacturing weapons or like mining for ore items for... Purely an industrial city. Purely industrial. And so when the when the referendum happened and out of the 84, 84% of the country that turned out, 90% voted for independence, that kind of left them with no army. Pretty much, like I said, they had the third largest nuclear power. Mm-hmm. They beat France and England in the amount of nuclear capabilities they had. Wow. Straight away after the Soviet Union broke, GDP fell by 60%. Inflation jumped up by 10,000%. Uh, the, com- the country fell into poverty. About 50% of every household in Ukraine was earning $5.5 a day. Life expectancy fell by 5%. And pretty much Ukraine tried to figure solve the situation the same way Russia tried to solve the situation by privatizing the whole economy. And this pretty much meant that a lot of people started taking advantage of that situation. Former communist elites became the new oligarchs of the country. Of Ukraine. Yeah. And they pretty much would later own 50% of the whole GDP. Now, corruption 
was endemic at that point. The economy struggled to grow or to diversify beyond producing basic commodities and equipments like steel, iron ore, or mining equipment. Like so much so that in 2006, base metals made up 43% of the whole Ukrainian exports. Mineral products 10%, chemical products 8.8%. And let's not forget, like, they were pretty much fucked with the whole Chernobyl thing. Yeah, sure. Russia was Ukraine's top trading partner. 56% of all Ukrainian exports was being brought by Russia. The next country was uh, UK, 3.4%. Now, during the breakup of the Soviet Union, Ukraine was pretty much split between two ethnicities. You had Russians in the East, the Ukrainians to the West. And this was pretty much divided by a pro-Russian East, a pro-oligarch West. And which resulted in 50-50 booking. Every presidential election would pretty much shift from a Western to an Eastern. To an Eastern favorite. Uh, but confused identity. Exactly. And you know, this does not have any benefits to the economy. Not at all. It made Ukraine the poorest country in Europe. So much so, they were calling it the sick man of Europe. Yeah, I, mean, I remember that. Yeah. And you'd go from a corrupt pro-Russian president, such as Yanukovych, Yanukovych, yeah, to uh, who pretty much was ousted uh, by rigging elections and doing what Russians do best, rigging elections, silencing media, propaganda. And he would go for a more, and then they would go for a more Western candidate who was also as corrupt, who would get ousted. And this is where we go to 2010. So Yanukovych was taking another crack at it in 2010 yeah. to become president. He was pro-Russian. And our friend pretty much had an uphill battle ahead of him, right? So you see, Ukraine relied on cheap gas from Russia. Yeah. The majority of the country wanted to be a part of the EU. And what's more fucked that his party was allied with Putin's United Russia party. So it would have been a good puppet for Putin. But his country wants to go into a more Western direction. Yeah. They saw that they weren't benefiting from this Russian alliance. So there was a push from his Russian party to get closer to Russia. But the oligarchs who pretty much paid for his election were tangled to the West financially. They did not want to see a Russian influence take over Ukraine. And America was trying to woo Ukraine on its side. Putin and Russia were trying, was like, was being the jealous ex that couldn't just let go of Ukraine. For the next four years, he found himself like towing a fine line with the West and his best friend to the East. He spewed shit like, oh, the symbolic unity and the cooperation with Moscow, you know, and how in certain industries we strive together. He tried to make Russia like the second official language. He rejected NATO. He started... started, amping up emotional values to the Ukrainians so that they don't go more Western and they stick to Russia. Exactly. And he tried to also get rid of anyone who resembled a Nazi collaborator from National Heroes. More about that later. But anyway, he struck a deal with by letting Russia Black Fleet, Black Sea Fleet use Crimea as their base up until 2042. Wow. And you can see where this is going to lead to. And in return, they'll get discounted gas. Of course, the question is how did the government of Ukraine meet this decision? kid you the fuck not i had to really youtube it to make sure that this was authentic they started fist fighting and throwing smoke bombs at each other during the ukrainian parliament when that decision was passed wow so a puppet but not in his ways he was pretty much he was he was non-committed to join a russian-led custom union of former soviet republics and he refused to merge the country's state-owned gas together but at the same time did not want to fully commit to western powers want to be right in between he tried to find the light right in between but like I don't know. It was weird. Like he, he tried to, he demanded the Western countries to give him more of um, updating Ukraine's natural gas infrastructure. And even flirted with the ideas of having like a European integration and a free trade agreement with the EU and the IMF. Yeah. And the IMF was pretty much behind this. And you know, I'm IMF. beginning to think the West is pretty much selling the IMF as that cool kid who's pressuring you to do drugs. It's like pressuring you to take the IMF money. Yeah. And so of course, shit like that, familiar to so many countries that would get fucked from Western bailouts. 
it meant that if you they wanted to take IMF money, they had to get elimination of tariffs. Uh, they had to freeze p- pensions and wages, uh, spending cuts, the end of gas subsidies to Ukrainian households. It was pretty much up to the president. It's like, if you want this loan to get Putin off your back and to stop becoming so Russia dependent, you're going to have to take this with that. Yeah, it was like the, the uh, like, uh, almost like selling your soul. Exactly. And he almost thought it presumably worth it just to have Moscow's nose out of his business. They were so tired of Russia. Exactly. Like, I'll do anything. But at that time, why are you willing to pay for that? So Putin pretty much doing a one man show of good cop, bad cop. He pretty much said, I'll give you the loan that the IMF is going to give you. No strings attached. I'm not going to ask you for any cutting tariffs, subsidies, da, 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 da. And the bad cop... He didn't want to lose the ally of Ukraine. Exactly. And the bad cop part, he did the trade blockade. So it's like, if you don't, I'm going to mess you up. <laughs> Pretty much. So it's like, not only like take the loan... So it was a blackmail he, in itself as well. In a weird way, yeah. Pretty much trade blockaded Ukraine until they accepted the loan from Russia. Russia. And with the and with the EU not being able to compensate the loss that he was about to suffer from the blockade, Ukraine went back to its ex and thus sparked protest in ukraine so you can see ukraine's pretty much being fucked from both ends in this situation yeah so the people in ukraine were pretty much in the streets chanting treason that ukrainian that ukraine is europe and it was just much more than that right because they're so done with russia that they just wanted they were willing to do this terrible deal just to get a, a different breath of fresh air and it's not even that like like you could consider this like the shot that heard around the world you know like this was the creme on the top of everything that's been happening right because they were also done with the nepotism that was happening in Ukraine, the corruption of the oligarchs, the corruption of the politicians. Yeah, they needed something different. Like for Yanakovich's son, who was a dentist, was somehow this like the second wealthiest man in Ukraine. <laughs> you know, and I'm pretty sure they weren't all getting braces in Ukraine. You know, yeah. And what, and his other son was a mo- member of parliament. You know, he was beginning to strip away the country's democracy bit by bit. You know, and do you remember like the elegance of which Boris dealt when the parliament was against him? He pretty much sent the dried police out to disperse the people in Kiev and the Midan. And then he ran through a, a fuck ton of anti-protest laws to justify the shit he was about to do. You know what I mean? Which pretty much only fueled that people, more people to join the protest. Yeah. As righteous as it was, keep in mind that this was not pretty much supported by all of Ukraine, but the majority of the Western regions were pretty much behind this. Mm. The Russians were cool with being uh, part of Russia. Of course. Yeah. So back to the protests. Now shit escalated and it escalated badly, right? There was increasing violence from the police against protesters who were pretty much all peacefully democratic, who used to like play pianos in the Midan and sing chants and anthems. They weren't, they weren't um, used to this type of violence from cops. They did not know what to do. Violence begets violence, right? Yeah, of course. And in a response to the crackdown, the protesters started fighting back with chains, sticks, petrol bombs. Guns were involved. 13 police officers were dead. 50 protesters were dead. Eventually, the police relented and pretty much they gave in and dispelled the end of the regime. Now, the driver of this violence that started by the Ukrainian protesters were due to the far right, the Ukrainian far right. Mm -hmm. Pretty much were a minority that served like as a revolutionary vanguard. Pretty much led only by like this one party called the Svotba party, which was led by a, a fella named Oleg, who once complained that the government was run by a Muscovite Jewish mafia leader. And then claiming later that he had Jewish friends, so it was pretty much fine to say the word Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, they were the ones who were fending off the police. Because they're the ones who, they also, they in a weird way, they kind of joined into the protest and kind of hijacking it. Yeah. Which we see a lot where like ultra-nationalist or ultra-religious groups would, would infiltrate a protest and they're like, this is our time to relish in the chaos. You know, we saw it with fascists. We saw it with... Uh, the small minority take over because they're the most organized. And they're the most vocal. The most organized and the most vocal always win. Yeah. It's kind of like with the Muslim Brotherhood. And 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So, anyways, these were the ones who were offending the police, and the reaction, of course, to the police's actions was not really something new, right? Like flashback to World War Two, where Ukraine was pretty much independent during a time when this Charlie Chaplin lookalike rolled through to restore civilization in Eastern yeah. Europe. Ukraine was pretty much divided into two. There was the Ukraine that was fighting for the Russian army. There was Ukraine that were helping the Nazis get rid of the Soviet army. And there was Ukrainians in the middle who tried Man, to resist both. Ukraine had the ultimate identity crisis, huh? It was really the melting pot of 20th century European politics. Pretty much, yeah. Now, we had new Nazis, communists, and Western sympathizers exactly, all in one place, yeah. Exactly, and... You had people in Ukraine who were enthusiastic about Nazis, people in Ukraine enthusiastic about Soviets, but there was also people who went to, who just wanted to live in peace yeah. and not be controlled by anyone, you know, but themselves, you know? For sure. And this was all during like a pit stop before the Nazis would go kill 26 million more Russians in Stalingrad and yeah. so forth. So back to the protests, right? So NBC in January 14 admitted that the right-wing militia-type toughs are now the ones who are now one of the strongest factions leading the Ukrainian protests. So shit went from 0 to 100. And it was pretty much like what was a pro-democratic, peaceful protest with liberal values ended up being laced with ultra-nationalistic chants that pretty much like harken back to the, day, to the 1930s, you know? Nazi days. Yeah. And fascist symbols were being shown, white supremacist logos. And even like, I saw even a picture of the American Confederate flag which I don't know what the fuck it was doing in Ukraine, but it was there. <laughs> and, you know, now I'm sure like most protests or revolutions, you're wondering who was leading this. There had to be someone who started this protest, right? Yeah. And this is going to lead us to someone called Vitaly Klitschko. Who's Vitaly Klitschko? He's a former boxer who became a protest leader before the violence erupted. And he tried to resolve the escalation between the cops and the protesters. But this guy was eclipsed. Um, when he got a 232 by the Nazis, just to show you like how much they hijacked it. Oleg, the head of the right-wing party, who was pretty much Zeke hiling his way through it, and <laughs> later on would get a handshake from John McCain, he was pretty much running it. And at the end of it, while, um, while America was willing to jump in and support whoever they could to kick out the president at that time, they were kind of um, stuck because the EU, on the other hand, was worried. They were worried about the current situation. They were saying that the EU protest was being hijacked, and they tried to push for a compromise. Yanukovych? Yanukovych. 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 I guess we'll never know. <laughs> and the opposition leader, which they could broker a deal for them to join the EU. And, um, and that he would eventually step down with time. But uh, the ultra-nationals pretty much were in charge of the whole ordeal. And, they point, and at this point, they said, fuck the EU. We want the right-wing Nazis to take control at this point. Damn, so they're, they're now back on the rise. Exactly. And the US ambassador to Ukraine, she responded with, fuck the EU. Wow. Yeah, and there's a clip of it online that I'm going to play for you. Yeah, so you could hear um so you could hear what she said. And it was in a leaked phone call where they were discussing who would be in charge of the new Ukrainian regime. Shit. Yeah, uh, so So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, f the EU. No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. Pretty much in the conversation, Yats, she mentions a person named Yats, who's Yatsnik. And I should have really read the pronunciations, who is the leader of the People's Front of the right wing. And he was pretty much a new liberal candidate or a right wing new liberal candidate. So Klitschko, who was pretty much hoping for a comeback from being knocked out by the, by the right wing Nazis, wanted a shot at running for presidency. And uh, that's when America threw in the towel. 
and they wouldn't let him even in the government. America, using the power of a genie, got their witch, and many of the far right ended up pretty much in the positions of power. And those dudes didn't even have to wait, man. The Speaker of the Parliament was led by two neo-Nazi organizations, subtly, subtly named the Social Nation- National Party of Ukraine. <laughs> And the Patriots of Ukraine. It's like, I've seen this before. Yeah, whose members were pretty much who would form the core of the Azov movement more than later. The deputy minister of interior was an Azov veteran. The government would pass legislation making two World War II paramilitaries organization, Ukrainian nationalists and, Ukra- and Ukrainian insurgent army. And, it made it, and they made it a crime to deny their heroism. And these two groups have participated in the killings of Jews and Poles. And pretty much they started bringing back lots of Nazi symbols. And they brought back them like into the zeitgeist. The Ukrainian, the Ukraine State Committee for Television and Radio was enforced to glorify, to glorify the heroes and ban any anti-Ukrainian literature. And this, of course, led to a rise of anti-Semitism with Ukrainian Jewish leaders releasing an op-ed urging the West to address the whitewashing. There's a big Jewish population in Ukraine yeah. as well. Yeah. And they were co- and they tried and they tried to get the West to address this whitewashing of Ukrainian history. And finally, the post-Madian government attempted to get rid of any Russia as an official language. And despite all that, the protest demands have pretty much gone unfulfilled. You know, uh, in Ukraine, everything they've been demanding since the protest was pretty much ignored by the government. See, now you're an ethnic Russian chilling in the eastern region of Ukraine when all this is happening. And you begin to see this sense of fear developing and this in retaliation to this. So our friend Putin jumped on this and pretty much pulled an American move and invaded and annexed Crimea during that time. While other parts of eastern Ukraine was being pumped with Russian weapons and training courses, all this of course to create some dissidents and perpetual civil unrest until the country collapses. And remember I mentioned a group called Azov? Yep. Yep. Well, so now the government of Ukraine uh, wanted to suppress the civil war that was happening in the East and to subdue the separatists by any means necessary. And who better than a group of people who believe that in a Ukraine for Ukrainians? So why are the neo-Nazis in Ukraine kind of getting a different lens than, say, other neo-Nazis? Because every country has neo-Nazis, you know? The Ukrainian situation is a bit different because, like, say, like, unlike the ticky-torching, marching neckbeards of the United States, the Ukrainian Nazis are, were pretty much a part of the Ukrainian National Guard. And they were served a battalion in the army. So you had effective neo-Nazis with their flags in the army. Who knew what they were doing, yeah. Who knew what it was doing. Um, and it was the Azov Regiment. And the funny thing about the Azov Regiment is that they would go to blackmail concerts to pick up uh, recruits. Wow. Yeah, so... Nothing more neo-Nazi than that crew. Yeah, man. Uh, the problems of listening to black metal sometimes is you have to rest with this. So pretty much the battalions were made of football ultras and black metal fans, you know, who were armed with guns and were a part of the army. Now, America, of course, went, were more than happy just to fund these people with money and weapons. I mean, this is such an American thing to do. Think Afghanistan, you know, by funding an extremist group with money and weapons and a little thank you, and a little thank you note in Rumble 3. And then Afghanistan became a mecca for jihadists. Yeah. Ukraine pretty much became a hub for right-wing militias. From all over the world, neo-Nazis would go to Ukraine and do training regiments there. Uh, so Ukrainians, like the Afghanis, are, are true victims of the extremist war that has been happening there. You know, like... It's literally just all, these, all these ideologies done by different superpowers dumped into... One. And, and the most ones who get fucked by it are the civilians who pretty much just want to live peacefully. They just want to have, have wealth, yeah. Yeah, and... It kind of started a cold war between two capitalist nations now, Russia and America. Yeah. So in an interesting turn of events of life imitating art, an actor by the name of Vladimir 
Zelensky became the president of Ukraine. And he was voted in, of course, as an outsider change agent, you know, someone who's outside the establishment. Yeah, an actor and all that. Yeah, and he was a Jewish man who pretty much demolished the, the right-wing candidate who ran against him. And he promised to change things for the better, you know. He tried to call for a ceasefire in the eastern part of Russia to come up with a settlement. But, you know, Nazis have a thing about Jewish people telling them what to do with their guns. Yeah. Uh, did not listen. Pretty much he seemed to lose control. Exactly what can you control when you're in a pawn in a proxy war? Like you're pretty much, what what are you going to control? What you, best can you do? Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, the guy was really out of his way. I mean, like America and Russia were milking Ukraine for what it's worth at that point. Uh, Russia with their revolving um, separatist uh, politics, America funding with its Western oligarchs, so much so that like Hunter Biden was giving a million dollars a year to be a board member in a Ukrainian holding company. <laughs> what experience he had, I don't know, but it was the world's largest private natural gas producer in Ukraine. And he was just there making money off of it. And of course, there was a rumor that Biden pretty much held up billions of dollars in aid until the prosecutor who was investigating his son was fired from the from his position in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And again, Trump would also threaten to pull out aid if they did not give him information about Hunter Biden, if you remember, remember that. that call, yeah. Exactly. And Russia kept threatening Ukraine about its Nazi situation and this whole rhetoric about we need to be one country. And this whole like... It's like there's something about Mary, but it's Ukraine. <clears throat> but yeah, but it's Ukraine. And the country is pretty much being torn at the seams at this point. So see, it's one thing when you're running a ticket of defending the interests of its people. It's another thing when you get to act upon it, right? And Zelensky was becoming very deeply unpopular at that time. You know, so much so that the Western media were pretty much... Who are, who are now simping on him, by the way, pretty much called, called him a comedian and a joke and a clown. I don't know if you remember these articles, but Zelensky was pretty much hated in the West. Yeah. And he was seen as a failed president. Mm -hmm. And saw him nothing short of a failure. And he was pretty much unable to democratize the system. The socioeconomic policies remain pretty much in its place. And so now you're Zelensky and you have two options. Either you could get ousted in a protest like your former president or you could do what Zelensky did and pretty much going went after his political oppositions. He imposed sanctions on Russian Ukrainian legal entities and he, he pretty much put sanctions on three Ukrainian TV channels. Journalists who opposed him tried, tried to get created a new tried to create a new channel but it got disconnected from broadcasting. He was concentrating power in his hands. He started bringing back talks of joining NATO. Okay. And this brings us back to Putin who's now pretty much at this point livid he sent his troops to the border of ukraine okay and he tried to set policies to make ukraine neutral his solution was that i would leave if nato fucks off from eastern europe pretty much stop having western exactly and become a neutral state but it would never be neutral but yeah yeah we know by neutral means that i'm going to take over but he was pretty much saying you guys get your hands off of ukraine and i'll, I'll take my troops away ukrainian tried to ask the americans for help about the situation Russia remained for one year doing border exercises on the board, like military exercises on the border. America pretty much did absolutely fuck all, you know, as if it was kind of waiting for the invasion to happen. Biden kept alluding that America will not send troops to Ukraine. It was clear as day. Yeah. So Russia pretty much thinking that America, this is American appeasement. I don't know if it was American appeasement or not, pretty much invaded Ukraine as a peace operation. It turns out like the Ukrainian president himself came out and said that even Biden, the Europeans, were not even gonna, interested in having him in NATO. And they just told him to say that. Yeah, they uh, would just use us puppets to stand up to Russia. Exactly, like pretty much, uh, yeah, we'll get you into NATO. Pretty much the same thing what Bush did. It's like dangling a fruit to Ukrainians. Exactly, and it fucked Ukraine because you kept telling them that say this and we'll eventually think it over. So and you, you, st you stood up to Russia with blank top of them supporting you and the support never came. Exactly, and here we are now. A story of two countries who from the start were doomed to fail from dubious politics, shady interventions, 
untamed capitalism, a rise of an autocrat who pretty much dreams of a past glory, a nation who had legitimate grievances and who was tried to find its way into the 90s and 00s, only to find it being forced into a marriage of convenience with the far right, blessed by the Western powers, a jealous ex watching from the sidelines who wanted to find nefarious reasons to reclaim it. It's a story tragically like, it's, it's so common in post-Cold War Europe, of a country maimed and torn when it's po- like by pol- political and social divisions and it's something in the middle east that we're so accustomed to yeah absolutely it's and it's like being being tussled by like this great power rivalry between two countries you know and there is a lot of proxies that have been happening and like this western failure to understand that it has led from its actions you know from its reckless actions it had allowed ukraine to be victims to russian invasion and russian hostility you know just because it's placing shadow, shadowy motives and shifting allegiances you know on the 21st of february putin goes on tv and gives a history lecture about and rewriting the historical narrative yeah, of I ukraine remember that, yeah and he said that russia won't make the same and he said russia won't make the same mistake twice like this time we have to go balls in exactly yeah and um and what has russia achieved at this point like the war pretty much has not gone in favor of anyone nope russia russian soldiers and ukrainian civilians have been killed have been displaced Ukraine offers a detailed proposal of neutrality in Istanbul. Goes nowhere. April 8th, the EU bans imports of Russian coal, lumber, cement, seafood, and fertilizers. IMF pretty much forecasted that a global growth of 3.6% for this year, which is pretty much down 0.8% from last year due to the war. Russia cuts its gas to Bulgaria and Poland for refusing to trade in rubles. Gas prices have been skyrocketing in all over the world. Yeah. America is pretty much on May 19th approved the $40 billion spending for Ukraine while its country is going through inflation. There's the whole wheat... Uh... And unfortunately, on June 3rd, the beginning of this month, Ukrainian officials came out and said that Russia has occupied 20% 20 of its territory. You know, and like if you look at all of the, and like the question is, like we say, how did this impact us, right? How has it not? I mean, in Sri Lanka, there's been protests in April because of the inflation hit 30%. Food prices and fuel has been up. Uh, The government suspended payments on foreign debts, no bailouts. Like they sought bailouts for IMF. And now China and India are competing on this country to pay to pay off its debts. Lebanon, uh, in the first month of war, the price of sunflower surged by 83%. Wheat jumped by 47%. Uh, the cost of the food basket has tripled in the year in Lebanon. Ethiopia fer- fertilizers jumped off by tw- 200%. Fertilizers for crops. You see the economic effect of that. In Egypt, most of the country's wheat imports came from Ukraine and Russia. Promoting a ban on exports of flour, wheat, and pasta lentils. The government also fixed the price of commercially sold bread because it was skyrocketing. The central bank devalued the Egyptian pound, but the Egyptian pound now skyrocketed against the dollar. Yeah. And now the country relies on Russia and Ukraine for wheat exports and tourism. None of that is happening. Happening at the moment, exactly. Peru, food, fertilizer, fuel jumped up. There's a political crisis in Peru. Demonstrations have swept the country over the high prices. Bangladesh, the garment, the garment industries, the engine of the economy is facing disruptions in the fashion brands existing from Russia. They're not producing. The government launched a food subsidy program as prices spiked. Moldova, the former Soviet Republic, is pretty much scared now because 1,500 Russian troops are stationed in its uh, in its one of its areas, uh, and they're scared that this is going to be another invasion of Moldova. Pretty much, they want to create a buffer state between Russia and NATO by using Moldova. This is where we are today. Huge chain reaction and just affecting everyone because of how much necessities these countries were producing. And it's interesting because like, why did I pick this topic instead of picking something a bit more ancient? This came during such a time where I've never seen an effect so happen so rapidly, especially with what's happening with COVID and how everything was supposed to go back to normal and then you get this war and now it's like another thing. It's It's because of globalization, how much we're so interconnected now. 
One, it shows that we can't afford to have wars anymore because of the chain reaction. Oh, and sorry, I forgot to mention, now the whole China-Taiwan debacle, which I don't know if it's inspired from the whole Ukraine thing in Russia, but now I heard that like Ukraine and uh, Ukraine, sorry, China is refusing to acknowledge the independence of Taiwan still, of course, but there, there being more uh, escalation of an invasion over that territory. I don't know if it. So the question is, do you think this will prompt any further disasters? I think what this has proved is that um, all these small nations that were fighting against uh, China, Taiwan, I mean, China, Russia and whatnot, we're hoping the West would be its support because the West promised them, you guys keep challenging uh, those Eastern blocs and we will support you. But then when push comes to shove, they didn't support militarily. And I think that's what's proving now. Like they, they just caught America and the Western nations bluff and is giving them the confidence to do what they want to do now and just take over more territories for their economic gains. I, I could see that too. And I also see that... Um there's also this like idea of like electroshock capitalism where these countries were forced to privatize so quickly, so fast that they didn't even have time to properly plan it, which pretty much screwed all the economies, Russia and Ukraine. The question is like, had Russia integrated properly if it wasn't for Boris Yeltsin? Would Putin would have Putin been? Yeah, they just up? made it gradual, slow, rather than forcing these changes and like accelerated, uh, like hyper accelerate everything. Exactly, which pretty much screwed the whole economy. Such extreme actions cause extreme reactions, probably, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then now you got someone like Putin who's now in the scene. And um, now I'm not going to say he, he's like a dude who pretty much like a mad, madman, like Gaddafi. I don't think he's gone that far. But he's a very calculated uh, <coughs> sociopath almost. Exactly. And another thing also I want to bring up to is that now had Ukraine, what's done is done. The two countries have separated, right? Yeah. Was there a point where this war could have been avoided, you think? I mean, no. Beyond the 90s, no. I think 90s was the only time this war, could, this war could have been avoided because Russia can't bully its way to a nation as well. Do you think it's what Russia claims as a NATO thing or like what most... No, I think Russia. Russia just wanted a reason either way to get in. And NATO was a perfect Perfect excuse, excuse. Russia just wanted Ukraine to be under its thumb. And Ukraine stood up and uh, NATO was the perfect excuse. I think either way, Russia would have found a different excuse if Ukrainians weren't uh, giving in to Russia. If Had the Ukrainians been submissive to Russia since day one? Sure, but you can't tell a nation to be to, submissive to submit to and to be bullied by a superpower next by like I understand Ukraine fighting back, but I think Ukraine, uh, or at least the government, tried too hard to please everyone. Yeah, and in the end, they were caught by pleasing everyone. They pleased no one. They should have been more strategic with how they approached it, mm -hmm. but they weren't. They're like half of a third of them were with America, another third was with Russia, another third was this. They needed one person to unify their vision and to stand against all of them. And hopefully, maybe they could have negotiated something better. But by putting their, dipping their feet in each area and not committing to everyone, they teased everyone and ultimately pissed off everyone by doing so. But Russia would have taken over or invaded they either way. would have way. found a reason. Either way. Either way. Because Ukraine is so strategic. Look at the economic effects. It's happened because of Ukraine. So it just shows how much power Ukraine had in terms of uh, strategy and raw material as well. 
And um, do you think this will lead to World War Three? I don't think so. I don't think so too. I mean, there's enough time that's passed. But let's not forget, though, when we study world, uh, when we study what's it called, World War Two, World War One and Two, it's taken a, a year or two before it became an official world war. We're just kind of impatient right now. I'm sure, it's been like what four or five months, right? Yeah, yeah, four months. Four months, and the, initially in the first two months, we're like, "This is it. This is world war," and, and then uh, just خلاص, we we learn to live with that there's a war going on, and the news isn't covering it as much anymore, and it's just one of the many headlines that we have. But it's only been four months, right? Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I mean, we need to be a bit patient because world war didn't happen overnight. Exactly. Yeah. It happened like they invaded this place after six months. This other guy got involved after eight months. This guy, and then history lumped it as a world war. Yeah, yeah. So we are. It could be, but from what I see, what it seems right now, all the nations. Uh, no one wants a world war. Everyone wants to dominate, but no one wants a world war. I think uh, I don't. I agree. I don't think it will lead to a world war. I don't know how far. I don't even think there'll be a confrontation between the United States and Russia. I don't think there'll there'll be an attack, effective fighting between both, but I do think that um, this war might lead to another country. I, I don't know who, but I could see another invasion happening somewhere. Yeah, my concern is like a, a and, China. Uh, yeah, and someone will try to. Oh, it worked with Russia. I'll now I'll take my bets and go do this, you know, and because that's the problem. A lot of countries, especially separated countries, and this is. One problem of past of the Soviet Union is when you separate states. Uh, you saw this after World War One when they separated Austria and Hungary, and like, look what happened to Yugoslavia. And this was something that was brought up a lot. That what's going to happen to Russia is what's going to happen with Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was was one nation ripped apart, and then World War Two happened because of those small nations uh, and border one, and issues. One guy yeah. tried to reclaim it all. Yeah, and one guy's and like, this, my border is but there. I'll say this. Um, I remember reading somewhere that World War One and Two never ended, and we're still feeling the chain reaction of World War One. And this, right now, what's happening now is just an extension of that war. It's still a remnant of World War One issues. So you're saying that there was never really an end to the war; it was just continued in different places. In different, it turned into a, it manifested into a Cold War. The enemies changed. I guess because Vietnam, Korea was still they were still I mean, fighting they're, there. They're all remnants, or at least World War Two. And World War One ended, done. World War Two until now. I mean, look, who are the enemies now for America? Russia, China. Who were the enemies in uh, from the f- post World War Two? Russia, China. I mean, it hasn't changed in eight years now, man. <laughs> it's almost eighty years, and they're still the same enemies, right? Yeah, yeah. Even Russia and America, when they were fighting Germany in the forties, World War Two, they were still kind of like scrambling to who's better, and now who's scrambling on who's better. Russia, America. Do you think a part of it is Putin just can't accept the fact that Russia is... Because, I mean... It's still fresh. Without man. oil. It's still fresh. We've had... Uh, how long have England and France been at war before they finally let things slip? That's true, yeah. Right? I mean, we're so... Um, because we're so impatient, but we, we forget how long, historically... Uh, how, how long was uh, the Greeks and the Persians at war? How long were England and France at war? How long were the Spanish at war? Like, they've been 100 plus years off and on battles until it's finally been... So you think this is going to happen? 
I mean, American rush is gonna keep going at it in different stages. Uh, yeah, and then eventually they'll just find a way, and then it'll be the next thing. But yeah, like Liu Kang and Raiden in Mortal Kombat. Yeah, just <laughs> just they're. Uh, Wars don't end overnight, but we're in a generation where we thought it's past us and we can solve these overnight, but we still haven't figured out how to solve major disputes in the span of 10 to 15 years. Mm. And it's still taking us 50 plus years to solve minuscule issues and these superpowers. I guess uh, Germany was a flash in the pan superpower that came and went. Yeah, a, thir- a, th- a thousand year Reich that lasted what, 13 but, years. But the core of it since 1918 has been Russia and America. Of the and, 90- 90- uh, 19- 20th century. Yeah, since 1918, it's pretty much when the communists mm. took over and America when they started coming out, the isolationists. Don't forget that and America supported uh, the Tsarist regime. Exactly. During the COVID, the so this is literally a uh, hundred plus years now of two superpowers emerging around the same time because Russia was always a superpower, but the modern Russian superpower came out around the same time that America superpower came out. They both grown, they both seen economic falls, they both seen economic rises. Yeah, yeah. They both been head to head. They both been allies, and we're still seeing the remnants of these battles and these wars. And America has won the past twenty years. But let's not forget in the space war, Russia was winning post World War right away. But but there's a difference because like it like you think that the official pinfall of like done, Soviet, Soviet Union. Union's done, it's gone. But, but it's more than that. It's it's something. It's, it's not about communism because it's, it never really goes away, does it? Because you still have people who lived throughout that generation, like a Putin, who reminisced on the glory days. And the problem is with this war, the next generation are gonna hate Americans as well, and the, or hate Russians. So uh, the the boomers grew up hating Russians. 70s, 80s grew up hating Russians. Kids of the 90s kind of let go of Russia a bit. Yeah. But then in now the 10s are going to hate Russia again and China. Right? So this next generation. So we thought maybe in the 90s or O's, Russia was finally kind of like, they weren't the major news. It was more of Iraq, Afghanistan, this, that, Dan that, Hassan, that. Yeah. Know? But now Russia's back into being the enemy again. So now you're going to have this next generation of teens and young adults who hate Russia and or who hate Americans again. And until we have an extended period of peace with these two nations, where it skips a generation, mm-hmm. we will never see the end of it. Yeah, I guess you're right about that. Anyways, I think we should wrap it up on there. Yep. Any oh. final comments on today's episode on Russia and the 90s? Besides how many vodka bottles do you think Yeltsin drinks in a day? No nah, man, just hopefully they figure a way to to solve it and less bloodshed and more peace. But as long as you have these old guys in charge, man, yeah, and not this all change. and this whole like new liberal expansion, economic control, it's pretty much uh, we're in stuck in this. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, guys, uh, this was our episode for tonight. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, our the notes for all the articles uh, written are pretty much uh, will be in the description below. Follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, and follow us on our socials, which is going to be put in the description below. Um, I think that's all I have to sign off on. Yeah, guys. Uh, so hope you hopefully you guys enjoyed this one, and we'll see you on the next one. See ya. Have a good night.
sonny, there's only one word to describe what's happening, and that is panic.